Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Carl Bass joins us today from Berkeley, California. Carl is currently a proud self-unemployed designer and inventor as the president of his new company, Flying Moose, where he's building electric vehicles, robots, furniture, sculptures, and even personal protective equipment to support the COVID pandemic. Before stepping down in 2017, Carl was the CEO of Autodesk for 11 years and CTO three years before that. His tenure led the company in expanding beyond its core AutoCAD software into both new product development and acquisitions designed to expand into new markets that could leverage model-based 3D design, simulation, and lifecycle management, eventually leading Autodesk to be ranked 25th on Fast Company's list of the world's 50 most innovative companies. Before taking on the leadership role at Autodesk, he actually founded two startups himself, Ithaca Software and Buzzsaw, which he sold both companies back to Autodesk. He has invested and or advised for several digital industrial innovators, including Planet Labs, Form Labs, Zooks, Built Robotics, Ares Composites, amongst numerous others. In addition, Carl is a partner at an investment fund, XN, that invests in both public and private companies. Carl, very excited to be able to host you on the Heavy Hitters. I've heard from prior guests, Jeff Melt and others, that you are just the right guy to chat on all things digital industrial. So really appreciate you making the time and welcome to the Heavy Hitters. Hey, thanks very much, Ty. Uh, it's a pleasure pleasure to be here. Right on. Well, I, I gave a little summary on your background there in the introduction, but give us the color commentary on that journey from, from being a multi-exited startup founder to Autodesk CEO. It, what was really that hook towards innovating within some of these legacy industries? It probably starts, you know, I, was, I went to college. It, it took me forever. Um, it took me 10 years to get an undergraduate degree because I dropped out for five of them. And I spent a bunch of time uh, learning how to do construction and doing a little bit of, you know, kind of apprenticeship in manufacturing. And then I went back to school and finished my degree in math and computer science. And so I've always had these dual interests in, you know, building things in the physical worlds and building software. And so the first thing I did is I started this company with a, with a couple of friends. Um, it was originally called Flying Moose. And so the Flying Moose name is just a return. Comes back. Uh, when we realized that nobody would buy anything from Flying Moose, we, re we renamed it into the <laughs> software, uh, which was a much more commercially viable name. And, uh, you know, so I've always, I've always had these dual interest in physical things. And of course, at Autodesk, I mean, what was nice is we were building engineering tools for people who are building physical things. And so it was a way to combine my interest in both of those. Love it. Well, I don't know who could hold anything against Flying Moose. That's about as creative a name as it could be. Um, sorry, you had to rebrand there, but um, <laughs> that you, not many people have the affinity for both the so software and hardware and, and the maker ethos that we'll talk about today. So you've said on prior interviews after leaving Autodesk, you had a long list of bucket items you wanted to do. And a part of that list has definitely gotten you active again in, in your early stage uh, roots in the tech ecosystem. So tell us a little bit more about your current efforts, both that flying moose that's aligned to that maker community. I know you've been at it for well over 40 years. People can watch the videos online. Pretty impressive. Uh, the canoe you built with your kids as well. And, yeah. and also, you know, how you decided to get engaged in advising some of these deep tech startup innovators we mentioned earlier. 
Yeah, so I mean, one of the things I love is what goes on with startups. You know, there and the ones I'm attracted to are this combination of some kind of thing in the physical world driven by smart software. And it's mostly around things that are um, pretty innovative, pretty game changing. They may, you know, they may border on the crazy, um, mm -hmm. but, but there's a potential for something meaningfully different to happen as a result of it. So I'm less interested in the more traditional kind of enterprise software. And I'm really attracted to the things where people are gonna do something for the first time, where it's novel, where it'll bring a new capability to the world. And so that that's where I spend most of my time. Um, you know, and it's a combination of looking and saying, there's something here that is possible. If it happens, it's meaningful and it could be a real business. And so that's kind of some of the criteria, you know, I use when I look at it. You know, it's also important who the people are and you know, how passionate they are about it. But first and foremost, they go, if this thing is able to be made, will it make a difference? Will it able to be a business? You know, I'm not that interested in other people's hobbies. I have plenty of my own hobbies and I'd rather spend time on my own hobbies. So, you know, when I go and I advise, I'm really interested and I'm really interested in kind of giving back. When I did my two startups, there were many people who you know advised us and who joined our board? Who um, this this was you know a generous thing that they did in working with us. They didn't need to do it. And the same way, when I see, see companies now, I look for the ones who can really benefit from a little bit of experience and you know knowledge and um, you know and can ju just be helped by all of that. Uh, I guess the founder is lucky enough to have you give back and advise them on their journey. Uh, luck, lucky groups that are. And, and you mentioned Flying Moose. I, I just want to make sure and call that out. So is, is that a company that you're commercializing product with on your own or, or give us a little more color on that one, Carl? Yeah. So nowadays what I mostly do is I do things that I think of as, you know, kind of design experiments, you know, like something interesting. So Recently, we've been spending a lot of time on building super lightweight structures and figuring out how to both design and fabricate those. And we've done it for a number of companies that are doing things in space or aerospace. Um, interestingly, I just finished uh, after building all these like kind of prototype parts. I was like, this is really cool. And so I just built a table um, all out of aluminum that you know probably weighs a total of like six pounds using all those techniques so mostly i'm interested in kind of going down the rabbit hole and figuring out how people can build um kind of advanced manufacturing technologies or sometimes in the construction realm something new and crazy and um you know one of the other things is oh uh, maybe half a dozen or more years ago we turned a mig welder into a metal 3d printer mm. um and so th there's lots of things like that where there's this nugget of an idea. And what I just try to do is chase those things down. I don't try to commercialize a lot of it. You know, I'll sometimes work with someone else who wants to commercialize it, but I feel like I've, uh, you know, I've done plenty of time with that four letter word called work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and nowadays I'm really more interested in, you know, just pursuing these things that I find interesting.
Right on. Well, I, I even saw, I think you were with uh, the node and in, in Koslo with one of the videos that's on YouTube, some kind of go-kart instrumented to be autonomous with a drone. So you're working on all kinds of fun stuff. I, I'm going to feel yeah. if you, if you'll have me out, I'm going to come visit your lab at some point. seems like. Oh yeah. You are, you are more than welcome to come by and see all the crazy things we're building. Love it. Um, yeah. My, no, my latest thing was we just finished uh, converting a 1950 Chevy pickup truck into a, into an electric vehicle. And wow. So, so have that, you that, that is what's that? Have you, thrown, have you thrown any content online with the, the video of, of what you've done there? I, I don't have any videos, but I got a lot of pictures of the build. Okay. Um, I have this website, carlbass.com. And on there, there's, there's pictures. There's two electric vehicles we've been building. We took a kit car for a Shelby Cobra and made that electric. And then there's a 1950 Chevy pickup truck that we converted. And so th those pictures are all online. Awesome. Well, I encourage everyone to visit carlbass.com. I'm going to do it after this is done as well. Okay. Well, we're going to come back to discussion around business models and capitalizing, you know, those dual hardware plus software business models. But um, on, a, on a more serious note here, I've I've held on I've held off on podcasting for a few weeks, given this devastating news we're watching as Russia invades Ukraine. Uh, but associated to this podcast, thematic focus on the industrial supply chain, I, th I think it's the right time to discuss what's unfolding and and really get your take, Carl, on on all this that's going on to affect our global supply chain. And, and maybe as a reference point for our listeners, I've been tracking all of the digital and, or call it more industrial aligned corporations who are taking a stance against doing business in Russia in whatever form or fashion that may take, many of which, Carl, maybe you'd sold business into in the past, but uh, call it from the software incumbents, Autodesk, Trimble, Oracle, uh, the, the Aero guys, Boeing, Airbus, the Auto guys, Ford and Toyota, Siemens and GE on the industrial OEM side, CAT, John Deere, Equipment OEMs, uh, Exxon and Shell, Big Energy, Rio Tinto with mining, et cetera, et cetera. I, I can't even keep up with it all, honestly. So how does this all play out, Carl, in the supply chain, given Russia is a key market and supplier of commodities such as nickel for batteries with all the EV we we're talking about? Titanium for aero parts, uh, you know, even neon gas needed for semiconductor chips that we all know are already hard to get. H how does this all play out? And maybe the follow-up on the, the optimistic side, what can the digital industrial tech ecosystem be doing to prepare and support the change that's coming into the global supply chain disruption? Yeah, so there's a part of this that's really above my pay grade. And I'm not really sure I understand what the end game is for Russia and Putin. Um, and it's a little bit hard to really predict, you know, events are changing every single day. And we, none of us have great insight into really what their aspirations are. When it comes, you know, when you switch over to the industrial supply chain, I think we're leaving this period in which supply chains were primarily optimized for low cost. I think the combination of the geopolitical things going on in Ukraine and Russia as well as the last two years of COVID have really just changed all the assumptions of what, what's a good supply chain. I think it used to be about cost. I think everybody now knows it needs to be about robustness as well. And that was a trade-off people were making in the past. And I think they're gonna change that now. I think moving forward, people are gonna build more redundancy. They're obviously gonna build more things local. Um, I think they're gonna find alternate suppliers and they're gonna actually work on alternate designs. Um, but we're, it, it's just a necessary thing. I think as people uh, got worried about China during COVID and I think what's happening now with Russia, 
is just changing everybody. And when you look at any business model, um, you know, you can look at the complexity of the supply chain, but you really have to go back to the goals and assumptions. And this assumption that you just want to drive down costs is just no longer true. And I think a lot of people uh, will be completely redesigning their supply chains. You know, when we get to the digital industrial stuff, I think there's also concerns about whether there's either, either call it a worker shortage or a skill gap. Uh, we need more people in order to move these jobs into new places. I think uh, in a bunch of places we'll, we will be able to do work that formerly had to be done overseas with low cost labor. I think it can be done closer to home as a lot of the technologies that are you know incubating mature and hit the marketplace. Absolutely. I mean, the human element we've talked about numerous times on this podcast, if we don't get it right and, and help upskill and bring these these occupations into 21st century, higher productivity, higher paying jobs, whatever the nearshoring, reshoring implications that come with it. And as a guy that a decade ago was at Boeing, when Jim McNerney was leading the, uh, call it the recalibration of the 787 program, I think that's a case study, right, of, of where right. supply chain can get a little bit too far out there. Um I mean, we really, we really do have to take care of that human element. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Anything the startup specifically, Carl? Anything that sticks out to you that they could be preparing for and/or you know planning into their product roadmaps? You know, one of the things I've seen, particularly with a lot of the hardware startups, is just the difficulty in getting parts manufactured. Yeah. Um, so I think they're going to start out with different assumptions. Right now, it's an incredibly challenging time. Finding, you know, small fabrication shops or machine shops is, is really hard. Um, everything in low volume to medium volume production is actually fairly difficult and has become harder over the last couple of years. So I think more people are moving things in-house. They're becoming more resourceful. They're figuring out how to dual source many of the components. A lot of the companies I'm involved with are actually taking, I mean, they loved outsourcing a lot of the supply chain functions about components that went in, but a lot of them have found that they can't actually build their own products. So they're reaching deep into their supply chains and taking more control of it. I'm not sure if that's a trend that will last, but this idea that, you know, you just turn a blind eye to the supply chain and, you know, you can count on things showing up is absolutely not true. And so even these small startups are actually having a much more active role in both the selection and the management of their supply chain. Yeah, it's it's great advice. And it and it kind of lends us into the next question, if if I could push us forward here. You know, going back to the uh, the discussion of you being a maker yourself and advising a range of startups that do have this dual hardware plus software business model, you know, Velo did 3D, built robotics, Planet Labs, Alphabet, and others we talked about earlier. Let's discuss your strategy and how you advise companies regarding what sometimes and oftentimes is a capital intensive nature of launching these solutions that do have both software and sometimes a really sizable hardware component. Um, better said, right, when bits meet atoms, the, the dreaded CapEx word, whenever uh, all of us board members are looking at the P&L. Um, so we've seen some big industrial robotics and automation exits recently due to the large part, I think the 2021 SPAC boom we could agree on. And, but we've also seen some prior big robotics and automation failures on both the industrial side with Rethink Robotics and on the consumer side with Juicero. So bringing it all home again, the question is, 
Given the current environment we're now in in 2022, how do you advise these startups you're working with to think about their capitalization strategy required for scaling these types of hardware plus software innovations uh, that have taken on venture capital? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, you know, it was always interesting when I was at Autodesk and we were building tools, uh, engineering tools for companies. Uh, we always had this awkward conversation because in some way, our income statements, you know, were upside down. You know, the world of software having uh, gross margins in the 90 plus percent, uh, certainly 85 plus percent is kind of standard. Um, none of our customers had the economics of their business look anything remotely like that. Um, now, I think the interesting thing going forward is many of these companies that in the past would have been pure industrial are now digital industrial. And a huge component of what they can do and differentiate from the others is the software. And if they're smart about it, they can turn the economics of those businesses into things that look more like so software than they do like hardware. Um, you know, the problem with hardware is, you know, the margin, the margins just tend to zero over time. Things get commoditized. There's not enough differentiation in, mo you know, in most markets. Um, so when I'm, so when I look at the startups, one of the things I'm really glad of is during the last two years when funding was readily available, I encouraged almost all the companies I was involved with as they got these, you know, kind of very generous offers to take the money, even if they didn't need it. Um, you know, many, many of the investors, the founders these days, particularly the young ones have only grown up in a market that's gone up and to the right. Sure. And this is the first correction they're seeing. You know, I'm old enough to have seen several corrections and when money gets tight, it's just really hard to get. So number one is I encourage companies to bankroll, you know, more money. If someone comes along with a good offer, put the money in the bank and save it for when you need it and have it at your discretion instead of at the investor's discretion. Um, the other thing I think is important is that there needs to be an element of patience. So yes, these endeavors are more expensive, but they also take longer. Um, on the other hand, on the tail end of this, if you really build differentiated products, yeah, um, the gap between you and your competitors can be much bigger um, if, if you do it correctly. So, you know, it, it's interesting to have these things. They are absolutely capital intensive. Um, there's very little that, you know, you can do about it. Um, it also doesn't have some of the so same ways to accelerate like some of the software businesses do. But the flip side of this is you have the ability to influence, you know, huge industries. You know, as you've said, you know, when you look at manufacturing construction, you know, it's a huge fraction of most countries' GDP. And you can affect those in meaningful ways. So I think it's worth the investment. Yeah, I think construction, my last check, 9% GDP in this country, uh, or 7%, 9% of the workforce, though. So, yeah, it's uh, it's mission critical, and uh, I think it's great advice. That you got to give a shout-out. I think the Lux Capital guys open-sourced their LP report last year. Deep tech investors who said, take the cash while it's there. 
and make sure you're picking your investors who are patient and understand this ecosystem to both of your points, Carl. So um, they're lucky to have you on their side. It may be a sub question to this. And I think this is getting more interesting now that we're again, entering a new phase of the market to, to be determined. My, my crystal ball is always broken for sure. But how do you define this term blitzscaling? I've asked a lot of times on this podcast and it, does it work within industrial settings, especially in light of how the public markets have have corrected over the last few months? So I'm curious to see your take on that. And if you, if you do believe in it, when's the optimum time to to take that Reed Hoffman term of blitzscaling into some of these companies? Yeah, you know, I think it works way better in kind of consumer internet startups than it does in industrial. I don't think it's meaningful in industrial. And in some ways, I actually think it could be slightly uh, destructive. And I mean, as you're well aware, you know, there are just a number of characteristics of building hardware or hardware combined with software products that are just distinctly different than software. Um, one is the amount of planning and the advanced time you need is just, you know, they're almost an order of magnitude different. You know, you want to make tooling and it's going to take six months or you need you need to build a big vehicle. It's going to take several years. That's completely different than software. As we also already talked about the capital requirements are different. The third thing is what I've noticed working with companies is, you know, if I say to you in a software company, um, well, let, let's use, let, let's say, the Google example. Um, you know, when they started out, they were going to, index the web, let's say every six months. And then they said, let's do it every month and then every week and then every day. If in a sprint, you only get halfway there, the thing is still really sped up, you know, and then you can go back and you do another sprint and you can speed it up again and again and again, and eventually you will approach your goals and hopefully even exceed them. In the world of hardware, you can't really build half-assed hardware. Like if you have the goal of making this thing do something, it only gets halfway there. It's probably not, it's probably not even a, a real product. And so there's differences in how you have to manage these projects. It's also true that, you know, adding money, adding people to many of these projects really will not help. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about, about how you do blitz scaling with physical things. And I think, you know, and I think it's borne out if you look at the history of companies, many companies don't build hardware products, you know, and get to scale instantaneously. You know, whether it's successful companies, look at Tesla and SpaceX. Um, they appear successful now. Those are long, arduous journeys they've been on to, to get the capabilities that they now have. So, you know, I think I think a better way to think about it is for entrepreneurs, for the founders, for the management teams, just really focus on what your, what your customers need, solve their problems, you know, and move at the pace that the industry adopts technology, and and that's where you're probably safer. Yep, find patient investors, take the cash if available, and. You know, it's again one of those things where safe, safety is going to be a part of. You can't build a half-ass hardware product, so know know that you're going to be in it for a long haul. I think all great advice for sure. Um, well, maybe pushing us forward again. You're you're a maker, inventor with 
all types of technologies flying around at the flying moose. If I could say right. generative design, additive, electric vehicles, uh, I talked about the drone enabled go-karts and our audience of listeners always is looking to learn about which leading trends and or areas that have been the fastest moving to be adopted within this emerging digital industrial ecosystem. So in a section I like to call what's hot and what's hype, do you have any thoughts about which of those specific technologies and or innovation approaches are hot and currently being deployed at scale as you see it in market versus, you know, what are areas of innovation that are certainly promising but are likely, maybe to use a Gartner term, overhyped right now given immature commercial readiness? How, how do you see both ends of the spectrum? So let's just start this out by saying, look, the observations that people make that many of these technologies are overhyped in the short run and underhyped in the long run continues to be true, mm. um, you know, and they get written about and everyone expects just because, you know, there was a little bit of a breakthrough that it'll be com commercially viable tomorrow. And that never turns out to be true. There's a number of factors about customer adoption and how quickly the companies can scale, as we talked about, that it kind of put it at a natural limit on how fast this happens. But when I look at what's hot, so one of, one of the areas that's obviously interesting in energy generation um, I think there's a number of interesting things going on with fusion uh, that I think will be uh, exciting. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm replacing the batteries on my electric truck. And even though, you know, we, we've heard lots of battery announcements that often don't materialize, three years later in replacing the batteries, even at a 10 to 20% improvement per year, it makes a significant difference over time. So it doesn't, you know, improve like semiconductors, but still the rate of improvement is substantial enough to make, to make a real difference. So I look at things like energy storage, energy generation through things like fusion, possibly even small commercial fission reactors. Those look interesting. There's no doubt that um, machine learning is entering the, you know, digital industrial workplace. And there will be lot, lots of stuff there, uh, along with you know computer vision. You know many of the things, truthfully, are stuck in the past. If I look at how robotics, you know, big industrial robotics has been done historically, you know it, it's primitive. And so while the capabilities of the machines are incredible, programming these things, you know, border on you know primitive. And I think there's a number of companies who are looking to change that so that we'll be able to deploy in greater numbers and much more quickly what goes on with you know, robots. Um, so I think that's a hot area. Um, I think some of the generative design technologies are really interesting. Um, also, there, there's something interesting in, let's just say what's going on with crypto digital currencies and particularly blockchain and the underlying technology, which will, will affect industrial stuff. Um, not as obvious where we're gonna see that, but there are certainly you know, glimmers of interesting places where, where you see that going on. But you know, first and foremost, I think if we just look in the industrial space, there's huge number of things that have never been um, automated that can be done. I think there's also a way to tighten up the tool chain so we can make tool chains that go from uh, concept to finished artifact much more quickly. Um, huge amount of things that can be do, done on the fabrication side. Most fabrication software, again, is 
you know, several decades old and trapped in the past. So there's lots of things that are promising. The other one that I'm really bullish on is a lot of the autonomy. Um, and starting with autonomy, you know, whether it's robots in the factory, robots in industrial settings, robots on construction sites, you know, and then leading all the way up to autonomous vehicles that carry passengers and, you know, cargo on, on both short haul and long haul. Um, I think there's a huge amount of progress there. Right on. Well, we're seeing a lot of momentum across a lot of uh, a lot of technologies you just mentioned there. You're the first though to mention fusion, and I you know, now you got my wheels spinning because it's one topic we haven't really covered on this podcast, and I I couldn't be more in alignment with you. We're all looking at the situation in Germany, and I don't care if we rebrand nuclear engineering to you know the rainbow energy, whatever it is. Um, anyone that studied the physics knows there is a lot of potential there that's uh, got some pretty hardened technology. So you've set me off on my to-do list here, Carl. Yeah, I like no, that. no, the, the fusion is really interesting, and you're seeing the first breakthroughs. Now, it may, it, it may even be beyond my life. I mean, it may be 20 or 30 years before commercially viable, but relatively inexpensive energy will change everything. And so we, you know, we, we have to pay attention to that. One thing I would put in the overhyped that, you know, I think has been overhyped for 30 years is I am still not a VR virtual reality fan. Mm -hmm. um, 30 years ago, I got nauseous. I still get nauseous. Um, and I really have, you know, outside of gaming, where, you know, it's meaningful, I still don't see, you know, what all the fuss is about. Um, I can certainly understand some of the things people are doing in augmented reality, um, because that feels like a more natural merging of what's going on in, you know, the universe and the metaverse. Um, but VR to me is just one of those things that, you know, my, the first time I saw a device was in the 1980s. And it's not really gotten any better in all those years. Yeah, it's, it's, I had an Oculus on my head this weekend and I, I came away woozy. So uh, it's not a very <laughs> articulate way of saying it, but it's it's got some work. I, I do yeah. hope some applications and training come out of it for sure. Yeah. Well, well, Carl, maybe last question here before we wrap it up. We always love to bring the discussion back to the most important people in this discussion, the founders specifically. Um, yeah. What words of wisdom do you have for the founders who are thinking about raising venture and or are looking to court you as an investor advisor? And, and we always love to split it. Any quick keys to success for them or common challenges to avoid as they enter the discussion? So, you know, the key to success is really picking the right problem. You know, it's picking the right market. Um, that's certainly, you know, like the high order bit is there's a lot of smart people who work really hard on problems that in the end are meaningful. And so pick, pick the right problem, pick the, pick the right market. Um, the other thing is pick your co-founders or your first hires early, you know, well, so the early hires have to be really good. Um, I would say worry, worry about the culture that you're building. You know, you're doing that from day one, whether you're aware of it or not. I mean, one of the great lessons I learned in running Autodesk, I probably came in as a, you know, an executive or CEO who thought, you know, making important decisions was the most important thing in the world. And, um, you know, culture was a byproduct. And, you know, kind of 15 years later, I left going, it's not the big decisions. 
it's real. It's who you hire and the culture you build is the most important thing. And I think founders need to know that they're, that they are setting the seeds. They're, they're planting those seeds for their culture from day one. Um, you know, the other things, the other success things for early stage companies is learning how to prioritize and not getting distracted. You know, when you're reaching out into a new field, there's always lots of opportunities and your customers will show you more, but the companies that are most successful, uh, in my experience, are much more focused. And then the last thing I'd said, you know, whether it's big company or small company, the most important thing is hire people who can get shit done. There's a lot of people who can talk about a lot of stuff, but um, if you want to build a business, the most important thing is getting shit done. Oh, great advice. And I know we don't have any visual on this podcast, but I did catch on one of your other videos. It's someone machined out for you. Get shit done in a big uh, metal printing. Maybe it's on your yeah, desk yeah, there. Yeah. But it's, it's, I'm looking over at it right now. There you go. Um, I need to CNC one out myself from one of these. Uh, maybe I'll reference my old portfolio company, Zometry. They can print one for me from wherever the network exactly. is. So. Uh, right on. Well, wrapping us up here, uh, Carl, we always love to do a little section called Quick Hitters, Rapid Fire Q&A. Yeah. So if you're ready, we'll jump in. Yep. All right. Number one thing you're looking for when evaluating an early stage founder within this ecosystem. One is that they're passionate, you know, that they have um, deep conviction about what they're doing. Um, there's just so many curveballs that are thrown at you as a founder that, you know, and so many uphill battles and so many people who will tell you what you're trying to do is stupid or impossible or will never make money that you, ha that you have to be passionate. You have to be resilient um, and you have, and you have to have almost an unnatural sense of optimism. And so I think that's important. I think along with that, and it's kind of paradoxical, you still have to be willing to be flexible and, you know, respond to changing situations. And so I always think of, you know, um, act like you're convinced, but be, be open to, um, data that proves that you're wrong and be willing to make changes. And, and it's that interesting balance between having conviction when others say no, but also being willing to change when you are confronted with things that say you're headed down the wrong path. It takes balance and, uh, you know, pride will only get you so far. I couldn't agree with you more there. What is one resource could be book podcast blog you'd recommend for our audience to, to follow in the ecosystem? Oh, there's a couple, you know, um, you know, if I, if I look at books, you know, the one that stood the test of time for me is actually all of Clayton Christensen's work. Mm. Um, you, you know, I, I, I think, you know, the innovators dilemma, um, is actually a really good thing. It's, it's somewhat timeless. And, you know, as we continue down this path to more digital industrial innovation, it's it it, it kind of laid it out clearly. I don't know. It's got to be 20, 30 years old, and it still continues to ring true. And you know, it just describes the situation of the innovators versus the incumbents, and we're watching that play out every day. You know now. Uh, so I like that. You know, the other resource for almost anything is, uh, you know, the thing I go to every day is YouTube. Like, <laughs> I am just amazed at the willingness of people to share their knowledge, you know, and I'm incredibly thankful, 
you know, because in many ways, you know, I'm a jack of all trades, you know, one day I'm writing software and then, you know, the next day I'm, you know, changing a gear on a differential. And if it wasn't for all the people who are willing to share their knowledge, it, it would be infinitely harder. And, you know, the great thing is, you know, knowledge is not a zero sum game. And so I can be a good TIG welder and I can teach you how to TIG weld and we're both the better off for it. And so it's really just a huge shout out and thanks to all the people who share all of their knowledge. Well, you included helping this ecosystem of founders uh, learn how to build in the digital industrial ecosystem. And to your point on Clayton Christensen and your earlier answer about passion, sitting on my wall is uh, how we measure your life, right? And you better be really passionate if you're attacking these spaces. Can't fake it in this ecosystem, in my opinion. So yep. um, one person who should be on the podcast, Carl. Oh, there's a bunch of people who are interesting. Um, you know, one person who might not come up as often, but who I think is awesome is uh, Mike Cannon Brooks. Uh, MCB is, you know, he's a co-founder and CEO of Atlassian, mm -hmm. but he's also done a huge amount of investing. He's very passionate about climate change and investing in things that will alter the path there. And I think, you know, um, he, he's done some interesting stuff and is a very interesting guy to talk to. Andy McAfee, from, uh, who's a professor at MIT, I think he has fascinating insights in what's going on in kind of digital industrial. Um, the, 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 those are two people. You know, the, the other one that's, of course, interesting is, you know, all the founders out there. Um, who all have their unique story, uh, continue to be interesting and, in you know, the, le the lessons they've learned. Um, and the one thing I would just say is it's always interesting when you interview people who have had a lot of success. Um, but it's all, but, you know, many of the lessons in life come from the things that people have done wrong. And so I think one of the people, I don't, I won't name names, but some of the people who have had like catastrophic failures, you know, you reference some of the gigantic startups that try to raise billions of dollars to change manufacturing or change construction. I'd be really interested in hearing, you know, despite their ability to raise billions of dollars, what did they do wrong and what lessons they learned and how they could help others avoid that in the future. Carl, you've read ahead somehow founders <laughs> and, and the journeys that don't that, you know, even if it's successful outcome, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned on the way. So uh, stay tuned. You have headed off po post episode 50 where we're at it. So sneak peek. Uh, OK, great, Carl. Well, finally, first way or best way for folks to reach out to you if they want to get in contact. Yeah, the easiest way is you can either either leave a message on uh, that carlbass.com website um, and I try to answer those or. You can just send me an email. I try, I try to answer, you know, almost everyone I get. It's And the email address is as simple as could be. It's carlbass at gmail.com. Right on. Well, an honor to have you on, Carl. Appreciate everything you're doing to help us build the ecosystem here and, uh, you know, reach out anytime. Hey, thanks, Ty. And I appreciate you taking the time to spread the word. <laughs>